If you have your copy of Scriptures today, we are in the book of Hebrews chapter 6. The book of Hebrews chapter 6. We're looking at verses 4 through 8 this morning. Book of Hebrews. Hebrews is towards the back of your New Testament. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. This morning I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for the sake that it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. This message is when saving repentance becomes impossible. This morning we come in our study of the book of Hebrews, we come to this passage of scripture, which is one of the most challenging Passage of Scripture in the entire New Testament. The issue that most people have with these verses is that no view of these verses is without some sort of problems. The phrase, it is impossible, is used four times in the book of Hebrews. And this is one of them. The others are in verse 18, chapter 10, verse 4, chapter 11, verse 6. The focus on this passage is the impossibility of restoring to repentance those who were once enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift. The book of Hebrews has continued and will continue to expose those that cling to false assurances. We'll see more of that in just a minute. I can't tell you how many commentaries I have read, sermons I have listened to, Theological works I have mulled over and more sermons I have read over this passage of Scripture this week. Hours upon hours of studying this passage of Scripture. I can't say for certain that my view is the right view, but I believe the view that I hold to is the most biblically accurate view. In my studies, I have found that there are several views of this passage of Scripture, but there are four main ones that I want to bring to us this morning. And uh, so this morning, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Uh, I'm not going to go just verse by verse and kind of break it down and, and maybe make application to that, but instead, we're going to look at those four views of this passage of Scripture because As you know, uh, I've been your pastor almost five years now. As you know, I believe theology is important. I believe what the Scripture says is important. I believe what we believe as Baptists is important and that we should know what we believe. And so we will look at these four views this morning. And um, I will tell you how it is that we should decide which view is the correct view. And then I will make a case on how we apply this passage of Scripture. To our lives. So we have a lot of ground to cover. I need you to listen quickly because I'm going to have to talk quickly. I usually do, but I may have to talk even faster this morning because we've got a lot of ground to cover. The first view I want us to think about this morning or to see that comes from this passage of scripture is known as the Armenian view. The Armenian view says that these are actual believers in this passage of scripture who have lost their salvation. So when it's talking about all these these blessings that we read about, these are believers 
but they've lost their salvation. And so this view very plainly says that the description here is of actual believers who have been converted and they possess true and saving faith in Jesus Christ. The reason that we say that this is the Arminian view is that Arminians deny eternal security of the believer and they deny perseverance of the saints. Some people say that those two doctrines, eternal security and perseverance of the saints, are the same thing, but I don't believe they are. Eternal security teaches that once you're saved, you're always saved, which is to say that when someone believes in Jesus Christ as Savior, they receive eternal life at that very moment, and they can't lose it no matter what. Perseverance of the saints, on the other hand, teaches that if a person truly is saved, God will keep them saved unto eternity because salvation comes from the Lord and not from man. In other words, those that agree with perseverance of the saints would agree that there is such a thing as a false profession of faith or to say what I like to say, profession of faith does not mean possession of faith. We see this clearly played out in the parable of the soils where one of them, where one of the seeds actually bears fruit. So, so someone could make a profession of faith and and all intents and purposes appear to be saved, but eventually their true condition reveals itself and they fall away. And so someone could make a decision to trust Jesus, that they could say a prayer, they could do all of the right things, but did God raise that person from death to life? And do they have a new heart? Time will tell whether they're truly saved. The Arminian view is different. It says that salvation is dependent on man's will to believe in Jesus Christ. And since their will can change, they can believe and they can unbelieve. And so serious sin, I don't know how serious of a sin it has to be, but serious sin means that you lose your salvation. And so they say this passage of Scripture is a description of someone who loses their salvation. And so this person that it's talking about is a bona fide Christian who's whose free will no longer was in cooperation with God, and therefore they are now lost. So any Christian could at any time be lost by their own free will. There are huge problems with that view. First, there are plenty of scriptures that clearly teach that true believers cannot be lost. John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30 John chapter 6, verses 39 through 40. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Secondly, if a true believer can be lost, then this text explicitly teaches that it is impossible for them to regain their salvation. I have yet to find any Arminian who wants to say that if you lose your salvation, it's lost forever. I can't find any to agree to that point, but yet that's what this passage of Scripture teaches. That's the first view. Many problems, I don't think it's the correct view. View number two is a loss of rewards view. That view says that true believers, this is true believers who have lost rewards. This view advocates that disobedient Christians are being addressed and they will lose their rewards, yet they keep their salvation. This view really uh, seemed to increase in popularity when John MacArthur wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. And in that book, John MacArthur propagated that the call of the gospel is a call to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So John MacArthur said that, that if you want to be saved, the call of the gospel is, is salvation, is that you receive Jesus Christ, not just as Savior, but you receive Him as Lord of your life. When he wrote that book, his view was very controversial and went against some respected Christian leaders like those uh, Charles Ryrie who wrote the Ryrie Study Bible, John Wolvard, and Zane Hodges. And the majority of those who stood against MacArthur's view of Lordship Salvation were from Dallas Theological Seminary. I don't want to bore you with all the details. You can study it on your own. But in 1989, Zane Hodges wrote a book absolutely free, which was a rebuttal to MacArthur's view on Lordship Salvation. All this is to say that those who hold the view that this is a loss of rewards, that this passage of Scripture is speaking of a loss of rewards, 
hold to his decisional view of salvation. Salvation is reduced to mental assent that does not include repentance of any kind. You can't, according to their view, you can't lose your salvation even if you fall away. And no matter how you live, you can, you can live in gross sin. It doesn't matter because you said a prayer one time. You could become an atheist. It doesn't matter because you said a prayer one time. You can, you can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter because once you said a prayer and confessed Jesus with your mouth and you're going to heaven no matter what, all you can do is lose rewards. I don't have time to go into everything that's wrong with this view other than to say that it goes directly against Scripture and against entire books of the Bible, mainly the book of James and the book of 1 John. The Bible is clear that true believers indeed can sin. As believers, we sin and they can be restored. But it is as equally clear that someone that will profess faith and profess to believe and not truly be saved. And I have one name for you if you think that that's not true. Judas Iscariot. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-4 through 4, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. This is not talking about breaking one commandment. This is talking about open, willful disobedience to the Lord repeatedly in someone's life. And the person who does that repeatedly crucifies the Son of God over and over again and publicly disgraces the Son of God and they can't be renewed to repentance. This is not talking about losing a reward. The third view. The hypothetical view. That says that these verses is a that they're a hypothetical warning against a sin that can never be committed. So this view says that all of this is hypothetical. It's a hypothetical situation. It's never existed. And it's warning the people against a sin that is impossible to commit. People who hold this view say that when the author uses the words, it is impossible, and uses the words fallen away, that he is saying that, it, that saying those words to incite the readers to cling to Christ and grow in His grace. This view holds strong to the belief that verses 4 and 5 are speaking of genuine conversion. Charles Spurgeon held this view. And the last I knew... From a recent reading, R.C. Sproul may have held this view as well. There are many others that hold this view as well because to be honest, it's hard for us to accept that verses 4 and 5 are speaking of non-believers because it doesn't sound like non-believers. Because verses 4 and 5 clearly describe what we would think believers are. Spurgeon argues that Paul, who he thinks wrote Hebrews, is arguing that the reason the people can't fall away is because it would negate the efficacy of Christ's atoning work on the cross. Therefore, restoration would be impossible. Still, others will say that this is hypothetical warning is not a warning against falling away from the faith at all, but against going back and starting the Christian life all over again, which would also be impossible. And while I thank proponents of that view make good arguments, I reject that view. First, because it seems very clear that the author is not talking about some sort of hypothetical situation. If a sin can't be committed, then why is there an argument against falling into it? Furthermore, why would the author go about using a very confusing way to make a point? I also reject this view because a hypothetical warning isn't a warning. If it's impossible for me to do something, do I need a warning to not do it? You don't need to warn me. You don't have to give me a warning. Pastor, I'm warning you. Do not swim to the deepest depths of the ocean. I'm warning you. I can't do it. You don't have to give me that warning. That makes absolutely no sense. Now, Spurgeon has a valid argument and counter to that. 
he makes a claim that God uses the warning of the impossibility of being restored to prevent Christians from falling away. He uses an illustration of God telling his children that if they fall over some sort of precipice, you will be dashed into pieces. And this leads the believer to cry out to God, Father, hang on to me so I don't fall over. And it sounds good. And so this hypothetical warning is for believers to be totally dependent on God. And that sounds great. Because the believer knows that if he were to fall over the edge, then there would be no way of restoration. Again, sounds good. I don't see how it holds. Because the analogy breaks down. Because it can only be true if there's even a possibility of falling. But because there is no possibility of ever falling over the edge, then why would I fear? So if I can't even get to the edge of a precipice to fall over in the first place, then there's no need to be warned about falling over it. So again, a hypothetical warning is not a warning at all to those that say this is a warning against those that would go back and be saved all over again. The same thing applies. It is impossible to be saved all over again. So why warn against something that cannot happen? Which leads to the final view, which I'll share with you this morning. The profession without possession view. Faith professed, but never possessed. I believe that this is the most faithful view and most faithful way to interpret this passage of Scripture. These people are not true believers. But they appear to be. At some point, usually in the middle of a crisis, these that have professed to be believers in Christ will prove that they are not believers in Christ. They repudiate their faith in Christ. They return to Judaism or to the world. They, and they side themselves with those who have crucified the Son of God. They may know the things of the Gospel, They may know about the gospel. They may even manifest gifts of the Spirit, but they are not saved. The author is saying, you will reveal that your profession of faith is genuine by your refusal to fall away from the faith in the first place. You you see these people that have professed faith, but they haven't possessed faith. They've tried Christ out. They've seen if it's going to work out, but it, it didn't work for them. And they decide it was All a sham. The Christian faith is a worthless faith. I should know because I used to be one is their idea. And the author says for those people, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. They've heard the truth. They've been exposed to the truth. But they've hardened their hearts. And their lives are a demonstration of the fact that they never were saved in the first place. Only their endurance would demonstrate that their faith was real. Now, even though this is the view I hold to, it doesn't mean it doesn't have its problems, because it does. The first problem of that view is uh, comes from verses 4 and 5. Because as we read these verses, it seems as if those verses are describing true believers, not false believers. Why? would the author place all of these these verses here, all this information in verses 4 and 5, why would he put that there if he was describing false believers? Secondly, if they're not truly saved, then why? what are they falling away from? And how could they possibly be renewed to repentance if they never truly repented in the first place? I believe those are valid questions, which is why all views have the problems. You have to decide... These are the problems I can live with. So we have all these views, these four different views. How is it that that we decide, with any scripture in fact, how is it that we decide which view is the right view? So basically today you're going to get some Bible study lessons. That's what we're going to have here. Some lessons on studying your Bible. How do we decide when I read something and, and this is why we always let the Bible interpret itself, which is one of our points here in a minute. But when I read something, how is it that, that if I go and read five or six different 
views on this passage of Scripture. How do I know what's the right view? You ever done that? You ever read something didn't make sense to you? And so you thought, well, I'm going to see what this person has to say. And then I'm going to see what this person has to say. And then you get five or six different views. How do we decide which is the correct view? Well, first, we must ask ourselves this. Which view aligns best with the rest of the book? Which view aligns best with the rest of the book. So we use this as an example. This is why I believe it's crucial to study Scripture as a whole instead of pulling out phrases or a few verses here and there and isolating them from the rest of the books of the Bible or rest of the book that you're in. And so some people say, well, Pastor, why do you preach through books of the Bible? This right here is why I preach through books of the Bible. Because I could pull out verses 4 through 6 and preach, hey, you could lose your salvation. And no, and no one would probably argue with me. They'd probably, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that because that's what the Bible says. No, we have to interpret it by the rest of the Scripture. If we read the entire book of Hebrews, we know that there is a theme. We know that it was written to Jewish believers in Christ who were facing a temptation under the threat of persecution to return to Judaism, which we went over in our first sermons in the book of Hebrews. We have seen that the author makes an argument all through the book of Hebrews for the superiority of Christ. For the people to abandon Christ and return to the Old Testament system would be to turn from God who has given His supreme and final provision through His Son, Jesus Christ, and to return to a system that was far inferior. In verses 3 and 4, the author uses the negative examples of Israelites when we're looking back at chapter um, 1, I believe, or 2. He uses the negative examples of the Israelites who fell and died in the wilderness to, to their unbelief. And this was done to warn those Hebrew Christians not to fall away do it to an evil, unbelieving heart. He further encouraged them not to fail to enter into God's rest because of their disobedience and unbelief. Furthermore, in verse 14 of chapter 3, the author specifically says this, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So these Israelites were part of the covenant community, right? They were, they were all Israelites. They had all part of the covenant community. They had, they had placed the blood of G, uh, the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. If you remember, uh, what happened in the Old Testament and the book of Hebrews is just reiterating that in the prior chapters, they had placed the blood of the, of the lamb on their doorposts for the Passover. They had eaten the Passover lamb. They had miraculously crossed the Red Sea. They had witnessed the pillar of cloud by day. They had witnessed the fire by night. They ate the manna. They heard the voice of God out Mount Sinai. But their hearts were still hardened and they fell away. They enjoyed all of the benefits of being a part of the visible covenant community. Yet in His wrath... God kept them from entering into His rest. They heard the gospel preached, but they were disobedient and refused to believe. You say, yeah, but there's, but there's some very detailed language given here. I mean, did you read the details that we just, that we just looked at? Did you see the detailed language that was given? I mean, they've been enlightened. They've, they've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. That's detailed language. So let's break down the detailed language. First it says, those who were once enlightened. So they were exposed to the gospel and to the ways of God. They had all tasted the heavenly gift. That's a strong expression. It refers to blessing. And so let's be clear. The Israelites were exposed to the gospel and the ways of God. They experienced the blessings from God, both spiritually and physically. Those that were in the Hebrew church were witnesses to the light of the world. They had tasted of the heavenly gift. They experienced the blessing of the church. And furthermore, they had tasted of it, of it very possibly through communion. Very possibly, some of these false believers were participating in communion, which presents the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now let's be even more clear. 
There are those that hear and respond positively to the gospel, but do not truly believe it. They may know about the gospel, but they're not Christians. Furthermore, there are those in churches today that experience the benefit, the blessings of the church, and again have participated in communion, who have professed faith, but they don't possess faith. They come into church, they sit in a pew, they say, I'm a Christian, they profess it, but they don't possess it. Remember, Hebrews has been this comparison to the Israelites throughout the book so far. And this makes perfect sense. Well, what about where it says that they've shared in the Holy Spirit? This means they've demonstrated some of the blessings of salvation and the gifts of the Spirit were manifested in some extent to them and through them. They show signs of regeneration. They're even identified with Christ and His people. Again, if we compare it to the rest of the book, we know that the Israelites corporately experienced the miracles of God, yet they fell away. It says they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. It refers to the goodness of God towards His people. And again, Israel experienced corporately the blessings of God. They all tasted God's Word of promise, but they were not all saved. In the Hebrew church, there were those who looked like believers acted like believers, but they were not believers. In the church today, there are those who look like believers, act like believers, but they are not believers. There are people who understand the gospel, but they've never placed their faith in Christ alone. They eventually fall away. Finally, it says that they tasted the powers of the age to come. Israel had the same experience. They saw the miracles They were delivered from the Egyptians. God sustained them in the wilderness. They tasted of the powers of the age to come. And yet, they were not all saved. In the Hebrew church, they tasted of the powers of the age to come. It tells us so in chapter 2, verse 4, when it says that they experienced signs and wonders and various miracles. And so just like their ancestors, they experienced the miracles. And just like their ancestors, some of them had unbelieving hearts. Furthermore, to explain verses 4 through 6, the author gives us verses 7 and 8. In these verses, he gives a picture, right? He gives us a picture of the ground that drinks up all the rain. That's symbolic of the blessings mentioned in verses 4 and 5. If it bears a crop, then its purpose is fulfilled, the author says, and God blesses it. But if it bears thorns and thistles, what's he say? It's worthless. And near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned up. The picture is clear. It's not a picture of a field that once had some vegetation, then lost that vegetation, but it's a picture of two kinds of fields. One with vegetation, and one with no vegetation. One bears fruit, the other does not bear fruit. One blesses, the other is cursed. God poured out His blessing on the nation of Israel and their lives should have produced fruit. But instead, they were faithless and disobedient and they died in the wilderness. There were those in the Hebrew church that were in danger of being just like the Israelites. They participated corporately in God's blessing of salvation. But now, they're tempted to return to the former way of life. But they do that They would fall away from Christ. And worse still, they would join with those who crucified Christ. And in so doing, he says they'd be crucifying Christ all over again and holding him up to contempt by agreeing with the unbelieving Jews that he is neither the Messiah nor is he the Savior. And if they die, they would face the fires of hell and eternal judgment. The point is being driven home. If you sit in church... And you hear the word of God, and you experience the blessing of the church, and you turn your back on it, then we're just like that field. We have no vegetation, and we will be judged. Now, we can't leave here 
without looking at verse 9. Because it also reinforces the interpretation I've submitted to you. The author has shown the real possibility that some in the church might commit apostasy. He says this, We feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. Now when he says we feel sure of better things, better things that than what? What does he say? Better things than verses 4 and 5. And these better things are things that belong to salvation. The implication is that verses 4 and 5 are those who do not possess salvation, but there are better things that do possess salvation. The better things of salvation are a persevering faith and a fruitful faith as opposed to a fruitless faith that falls away. And so we could say that according to the rest of the book of Hebrews, profession of faith does not equal possession of faith. That would be the appropriate view. However, if they did not possess faith, then why does he say it is impossible to be restored to repentance? And if they had never repented, then why talk about being restored in the first place? And that's a great question. So that leads us to the second factor for deciding the best view and the second factor that we should always use when we come to a passage of scripture that we have difficulty understanding your first reaction should not be what does pastor say about this that shouldn't be your first reaction your first reaction shouldn't be i gotta go find some books and and study about it. Your first reaction should be what does the rest of this book say about it? What's the context? What's it saying? And what does the Bible have to say about this overall? So that's point number two of how do we interpret this? How do we find the correct view? Which view aligns best with the rest of Scripture? When you and I come to a conclusion on any view, we ask ourselves, how does this line up with the rest of the Bible? Does it contradict the rest of the Bible? Or does it go along with the rest of the Bible? In other words, Scripture is always, 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 always the best interpreter of Scripture. And don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise. Scripture is always the best interpreter of Scripture. So let's use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Are there other Scriptures that seem to back up the idea that there are those that appear to be Christian and are not? And are there other Scriptures that reveal to us more details about this repentance issue? First, I submit the parable of the soils. That it teaches us very well that there are those who look very much like believers but are not saved and are indeed unregenerate. They look like Christians. They even have a spiritual experience before they fall away. But they're not believers. That parable is in Matthew chapter 13. But even if we consider just one of the soils, when it talks about the rocky soil here, it says that they hear the Word of God and it says they immediately receive it with joy that seems like a great conversion. They immediately receive it. But it says, troubles come and they fall away. Additionally, in this parable, the only soil that is saved is the fourth soil, which is the only soil that bears fruit. Secondly, I submit Judas Iscariot, a disciple of the Lord. If anyone would have experienced all that this passage speaks of, it was Judas. Yeah, I know very few that would argue that Judas was saved. In fact, the Lord called Judas a devil in John chapter 6, verse 70. He called him the son of perdition in John chapter 17, verse 12. And he even said that it would have been better that Judas not even been born in Mark chapter 14, verse 12. Judas fooled everyone. Everyone was fooled by Judas, except for the Lord. Everybody thought he was a disciple. Everybody thought he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, I submit to you Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Jesus, in his conclusion on the Sermon of the Mount, very plainly says, Not everyone who says to me, 
Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The people said, Lord, Lord. The people performed mighty works. In the name of Jesus Christ. And they thought they were saved. But he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are many, many other passages as well that back up this view. You can look like a Christian, but not be a Christian. Furthermore, there are many scriptures that reveal to us that insincere repentance is possible. In the Old Testament, Balaam seemed to repent when an angel of the Lord confronted him, yet his repentance was not unto salvation because the New Testament makes it clear in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 and Jude chapter 11 that his repentance was not unto salvation. Let's go back to Judas. Do you remember what happened right after Judas betrayed Jesus? you remember what he did? He felt remorse to the point that he gave the silver back. But we have no record that he ever repented unto salvation. He went out and hung himself. Listen to the words of Peter as he speaks about apostates in 2 Peter 2, 20 and 21. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So I believe, based on the fact of the book of Hebrews, as well as the rest of the Bible, that adequately supports the idea that the author of this passage of Scripture is speaking about false believers. They were associated with God's people, They were associated with the church. Therefore, they experienced the blessings of salvation, but they were never truly saved. So they professed faith in Christ, but they didn't possess faith in Christ. For them to fall away means they have intentionally rejected Christ and they repudiated the light that has been given to them about Christ and the gospel. So what I'm saying is this, falling away, it's not by accident. You don't accidentally fall away. So there's no need for you to run around today and go, what if I accidentally fall away? It's not by accident. Repentance for those that do this is impossible. Those that repudiate the name of Christ, those that speak against the name of Christ, those that once were enlightened and then they say, nope, I don't want it anymore. It says it is impossible because they have willfully and they have deliberately rejected the truth. They've hardened their hearts towards God and they place themselves beyond repentance. They have fully rejected God in spite of their full exposure to the light of the gospel and they crucify Him over and over again and are subjecting Him to a public disgrace. It is imperative for us to understand that the finality of salvation, my salvation and your salvation, the finality of our salvation is not dependent on you. Because if it was dependent on you, you would never be saved. Ever. It is solely dependent on God. And that's it. Your salvation starts with God and it ends with God. So repentance becomes impossible when a person has been fully exposed to the blessing of God individually or corporately in a church, but they fall away through their willful and deliberate disobedience and denial of Jesus Christ. Now, in spite of that fact, there are difficulties with my belief. I do believe that it is the best interpretation of the warning that we have in these verses. And I do believe 
that it aligns itself not only with the rest of the book of Hebrews, but it aligns itself with the rest of Scripture. Now, let's get to how does this apply to me? Because you're like, Pastor, my head hurts. Your head might hurt as much as mine hurt when I was studying this week. But how does this apply to me? How does this, how, what does this say to us as we read through this? Well, first of all, beware of dabbling in Christianity while disobeying God. Beware of dabbling in Christianity while disobeying God. I want us to understand that the reason the author is giving us all this information about these people, the reason he gives us this list was to make it clear that they appeared to be converted. I believe his, his sole reason is to make it clear that you, can, you can't just look at someone and say, oh, they're a Christian and they're a Christian and they're a Christian and they're not a Christian. You can't do that. And he's making it clear that in all respects, we would say that these people are converted. We'd make them deacons. We'd let them be pastors because they appear to be converted. They were involved in the body of Christ. And the warning is that we can go far into Christianity. We can go deep into being a Christian and never be genuinely converted. You say, well, how do you know, Pastor? I'll tell you how I know. I was a youth pastor before I was ever converted. I was leading other kids to Christ before I believe I was ever truly saved. You can fool everybody. You're not going to fool God. The church is no place for games. It's not where we come to dabble in Christianity only to be disobedient. When we fail to press on towards saving faith, we run the risk of a terrible fate. If we're not willing to turn to Christ today, then why do you think you're going to turn to Him tomorrow? There are many in the church that are merely dabbling in Christianity. They're just they're dabbling. They, they, they get involved. They do the things. They have everybody fooled, but they do not know Christ. Secondly, beware of professing faith without possessing faith. Beware of professing faith without possessing faith. Verse 7 and 8 make it clear that our lives should be bearing some kind of fruit. We should ask ourselves, if we've only professed faith in Christ. And therefore, our lives are only bringing forth the thorns and thistles spoken of in verse 8. Or if our life is bearing real, abiding, and useful fruit. Some might say, well, how do I know that my life is bringing forth fruit? How will I know if, if my life displays fruit? Well, I would encourage you to read Galatians chapter 5. Verses 19 through 23. And ask yourself, is my life characterized more by the works of the flesh or by the fruits of the Spirit that I'm reading here? Which, which of these lists best characterizes my life? Do I deny the works of the flesh in my life? Do I deny them while growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it the other way around? Am I gratifying the works of the flesh in my life while denying the fruit of the Spirit? Ask yourself that question. Beware of professing faith without possessing faith. Thirdly, beware of avoiding repentance. Beware of avoiding repentance. Sometimes for whatever reason, we tend to lead ourselves to think of repentance as kind of this one and done kind of thing. But it's not. You don't repent once and then move on to never repent again. You don't say, God, I'm sorry for my sin and then move on to never say you're sorry for your sin again. Some like to preach that repentance is merely a changing of mind about sin and not of behavior. Again, that's a wrong view and it's not biblical. Repentance is a turning away from your sin and a turning to Christ. It's, it's to be a continual characteristic of believers the truth is the holy spirit convicts the world of sin we read our word right sometimes you read your bible and you feel convicted of sin sometimes 
you may hear a sermon and you feel convicted of sin. That's not me, that's the Holy Spirit. We see that we are not pleasing to God and our response should be one of repentance. We do something that doesn't please God and we immediately feel conviction. We should repent. Our lives as Christians should be characterized by confession of sin and repentance towards God. Now, to be clear, we don't repent because our position in heaven is in jeopardy. We repent because our relationship with God is broken. When we see sin, we have, when, we, when we commit sin, we offend God. Relationally, we have a problem. And we need to restore that relationship. So beware of avoiding repentance in your life. Beware of being too arrogant. Well, I don't need to repent. Yes, you do. Pursue ongoing repentance as a child of God. Continue to put sin to death in your life. When you mess up, take care of it right away. Don't bottle it up and ignore it. Put sin to death in your body. Casting off the works of the flesh and living a life that's characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Finally, beware of ignoring this warning. Beware of ignoring this warning. The picture is clear. It's a picture of professing believers. Probably even church members who are not saved. Don't ignore the warning. Don't allow your heart to be so callous that you ignore what's being proclaimed to you. The author of Hebrews is issuing this warning so the people will wake up before it's too late. Last week the warning was, grow up. This week the warning is, if you profess faith without possession of faith, don't be so callous that you, that you enter into eternal judgment. True believers do not return to their old way of life. If they do, it is only evidence that they were not true believers. We'll see this again in chapter 10, where he tells them that they need to endure. And then he says this in Hebrews 10.39, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's saying the only way to move ahead as Christians is through faith and obedience. Even in the face of persecution. To give up and go back to the old way of living is spiritually fatal. Now, we don't have this message so that we can sit in judgment of who we think is saved and who isn't. We don't have this message so we can sit in our pew and think about, oh, I bet you so-and-so, I bet you they're not saved. Because, whew, they really got some bad stuff in their life. That's not why we have this message. We have this message to examine our own hearts and lives. We have this message to look deep and ask myself, am I dabbling in Christianity while disobeying God? Do I really know Him? Have I just professed faith in Christ? Do I repent regularly as a Christian? That's why we have this message. What I'm saying to you is this. Now I became, I became a student pastor at 19 years old. I am now 43. And by God's grace, I will preach many more years. But let's say I hit around 65. You know, I get 65 and I decide I've had enough. I've had enough of this Christianity business. I don't want to preach anymore. I'm sick and tired of, of this. And I fall away from Christ. I will have experienced all the blessings a Christian faith has to offer. I will have, have been enlightened. I will have been tasted the heavenly gift. I will have shared in the Holy Spirit. I've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. All of it. I've experienced everything the Christian faith has to experience. But if I fall away, if I decide I've had enough, there are better ways for me to make money, I decided. You know what? This pastor, it's for the birds. I get bored with my life and I get bored with my wife and I need something better. 
Going to church is just stupid and it's no fun. And all this Jesus stuff I preached for all these years, it was just worthless talk. And I don't know why I did it in the first place. I'm not talking about falling into sin here. I'm not talking about, oh, I had a period where I, where I was committing sin and I was backsliding. That's what I'm talking about. What I am saying is if I go against all that I know and I repudiate Christ, if that were to happen, then the truth, the truth is, I was deceived and I will be lost. That's the truth. And if that were to happen, then all of the things I did as a Christian, as a pastor, as a student pastor, was just done for selfish gain and humanistic pleasure. My preaching will have been done so I could hear the compliments so that everyone could say, oh, good job, pastor. I will have lived for, for the things that I like instead of the things of Christ. I will have done the things I did to fleece the flock instead of encouraging the flock to press on in their faith. And what I'm telling you is if that ever becomes the case, then Josh Mond is lost and he doesn't know Christ. What I know is that my perseverance doesn't depend on me. That's what I know. But I also know that the possibility of ever falling away causes me to pursue Christ with all that I have. My hope in Him is in Him alone. He will never, ever let me go. See, my confidence in never falling away is not based in me. It's not based on me. It's not based in myself. It's based on Him. He's the one I hope in. Next week, we'll see this even clearer. It's important to note that Hebrews does not end with this warning. The author assures believers that he had to write the warning for the unbelievers in the church needing to hear it. The question is, are you an unbeliever in the church that needed to hear the warning today? He's not seeking to put insecurity in the hearts of Christians. Believers who are faithfully following Christ's commands can be confident in their salvation. If we seek assurance of our faith, we'll find it in obedience. We will grow out of elementary things into maturity. Security comes from trusting in Jesus. Paul says, I press on to make my own because Christ has made me his own. This is our security. Jesus made us his. So don't ignore the warning. Are you dabbling in Christianity? Do you have a profession of faith without possession of faith? Are you avoiding repentance in your life? Don't ignore the warning this morning, church. Perhaps today, God has stirred something in you. I don't know what it might be. Perhaps you, you've ignored. Perhaps you've made a profession. And today you need to make that, that real. You need to, you need to say, I, I need to know Jesus for real. Perhaps you need to, you've never been baptized and, and the Lord somehow used this message to speak that to you. Perhaps you, you say, I want to, I want to be a member of the church and somehow this message was, made that alive in, in your life to, whatever. I'll be standing down front. Love to grab you by the hand, talk to you, pray with you, wait afterwards for you. You don't have to walk the aisle if that's not what you want to do. Unless you need to make a public profession of your faith, I'll be standing down front. I encourage you to respond to the message this morning. Let's close the prayer.